Today on The Black Goat, we talk with Fiona Fiddler about previous reform movements in psychology, what we can learn from them, and why this time could be different, and a letter from a graduate student whose advisor's temperament has changed. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And how are you guys doing? Uh, this is, we should mention that we're going to be talking to, or we're going to be playing a, an interview we already recorded with Fiona Fiddler later on. So that was pre- earlier recorded. We're talking on Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend. So we're all kind of uh, recovering. Well, Alexa, do you do you celebrate American Thanksgiving since you're... Canadian originally do you like do double Thanksgivings uh usually I do um so I usually try to celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving while I'm in the U.S. I don't go home for Canadian Thanksgiving because it's not as big of a deal in Canada as it is in the States um but then usually I will do something for American Thanksgiving um when I'm in the in the States as well um usually some kind of Friendsgiving um Mm -hmm. But this year I couldn't do that because um, I found out a week ago, actually on the day that we had a Friendsgiving. So we did, I did have a Friendsgiving here um, before the actual holiday. Um, but I found out that my great aunt had passed away. Um, so this is my great aunt, Junie, who I'm kind of like uh, happy that I get to mention her, at least on the podcast, because she was like really cool. And so um, her her passing was like sort of as good as these kinds of situations can be. She was quite old. She knew that she was um, about to die. So she got to say her goodbyes and she didn't suffer for very long. Um, But yeah, it was kind of cool to um, be able to go up to Toronto for her funeral and see all of these people who had known her in like a totally different context. So I just sort of knew her as like, um, sort of like a third grandmother figure. And we were pretty close and, but I didn't know as much about what she was like when she was young. And so I met all of these people who knew her um, when she worked at, she worked at the co-op for most of her life, which is a little um, unusual for her. She was like one of the only women who worked there um, and she decided not to get married. So when we were looking through pictures, my mom was like, oh, this is the man who proposed to Junie and she turned him down. Um, (laughs) I had like asked her once why she turned him down. And she was like, like not not being like sassy or anything. She was just like, well, I just like didn't think that I would make a very good wife. She was like, your grandmother, you know, she's a good wife. Like she knows how to like cook stuff and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, but I'm just not very good at that. (laughs) So I thought I'd be better off like working at the co-op. so yeah, that was kind of cool. And I was curious, I wanted to ask your opinions. Um, what do you guys think about uh, open casket funerals? I, uh, you know, it's funny. So so I haven't been to a lot of funerals in my life, but my my family, I have an Indian side and a, a, a white side. And, and the Indian side, most of the family's back in, in, in India. And so there really haven't been deaths on that side. Um, on on my mom's side, they're Catholic, and so they do open casket funerals. And so that's, you know, most of the funerals I've been to in my life are open casket. Mm-hmm. So it seems that like that was the first one I ever went to was my grandpa. Um, it was an open casket funeral, and that was just how um, how it was. How I you know how I first encountered the idea. Mm-hmm. So to me, it doesn't seem like it's not something. I would probably lean towards or prefer like if I was telling someone what I mean whatever when I'm gone people can do whatever they want because I won't care but uh, I I know it feels odd to some people who Mm -hmm. aren't used to it the first time they go to one for me it felt kind of that was just how it was done Mm -hmm. I think I've only been to one funeral in my life I don't remember if it was open casket or not but like I live so far from my extended family that I've never been to any of their funerals Uh but I think I like the idea uh, and yeah, I mean, sorry, this is going to sound like really weird to compare. First, I compare like people's kids to my dog, and now I'm going to compare your dead great aunt to my dog. But <laughs> when my dog died, I was in the room, and I held her while she died, and it was such a like bizarre, like it was so surreal to be holding mm-hmm. her body going from alive to dead. And then I saw a talk recently by an evolutionary anthropologist about how 
like maybe the theory was that like the fact that we don't do that so much with humans anymore like we don't see people actually dying and we don't see their dead body and we have all these pictures of them and videos that we can replay Mm -hmm. actually makes it harder for us to process the fact that they're dead and Mm -hmm. it causes this kind of weird confusion and maybe even prolongs grief or changes the nature of the grief and i don't know if there's any i don't know how valid that theory is but it resonated with me that like having held my dog's body after it was dead like made it really clear to me that she was dead even when i would like look at pictures or videos of her i could tell that that wasn't real in a way that i might Mm -hmm. not have been able to if i hadn't seen her body so i could see an argument for open casket for that reason that it's like makes it vivid in a way that might help with grief or Mm -hmm. something like that yeah when i was younger i thought that the idea was really strange and i think all of the funerals i've been to have been open casket and i've been to a few um but i thought the idea was like so bizarre and now i really like it um like i think it would have felt really strange to not yeah get to see her one last time and like yeah uh there is something sort of like surreal and uh nice and weird about the experience it's Mm -hmm. such a unique experience Um, yeah i think it should be weird right like it would be weird if it wasn't weird right when when someone dies although it's a bizarre uh, thing right because they like go through a huge process to make them like um, look look like themselves and they like do their hair and like really strange i listened i was listening to there's a podcast called reply all and i was listening to them yesterday on a on a drive and they were playing, this was actually a story that had originally been played on another podcast called The Nod, and uh, I should put a link in the show notes if I'm going to talk about it. But it was, this, the story that they were talking about was a, a woman who, when she was a, a kid, um, she, her, her, she had sort of a strained relationship with her mom, and, and her dad didn't live with her. Um, but she had this really close relationship with her grandmother. And, uh, but her mom, when her grandmother died, her mom, like, didn't take her to the hospital to see her and didn't take her to the funeral and just kind of told her in this sort of very casual, like, oh, by the way, grandma died kind of way. Mm -hmm. And she was having a lot of difficulty processing it. And so the story is how she had previously become obsessed with the game The Sims (laughs) and how in The Sims, as a way of processing her grandmother's uh, um, death, that she created... A character of yeah. her grandmother and she got all this stuff to make this character resemble physically resemble her grandmother to make her home like her grandmother's um uh she you know the family is black and they uh um i guess there's this whole because a lot of the sims stuff is sort of white centric and but there's this community of black people who've created like both sort of additional physical features to give greater variety but also like household objects that are common in, in black homes in America. Um, but anyway, she so she told the story of how like she processed her grief through recreating her grandmother in The Sims because she'd had this trauma- traumatic loss that her grandmother had been kind of the one sort of caring adult figure in her life who just suddenly disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was it was one of those things where if you'd told me that oh this is about someone who like recreated their dead grandmother through the sims i would have thought oh that's odd but then li- it was such a compelling story the way she told it and uh anyway yeah that i think the you know it is interesting i mean samin you brought up like the the different ways cultures process death right so in in india i've never experienced this but um they cremate people and the tradition is to do it as soon as possible um so the the wider family and and you know people like people might attend the cremation um but it's not like the open casket thing but i think that oftentimes people who are very close to the person who died are involved in preparing the body washing it wrapping it um and so it is for some people this, you know, similar kind of almost intimate experience. But it's funny that my two halves of my family are like, one is like, let's, you know, let, let's have a mortician preserve the body mm-hmm. and have the funeral five days later and everyone can see. And the other is, you know, we're going to, to you know, 
essentially destroy the body as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of, it kind of, I mean, it, obviously it works in very different ways in both cultures, but mm. um, yeah, it's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Death. Well, should we, uh, <laughs> death. <laughs> Should we should we do our letter? Should we move on to I wish, our letter? I kind of wish that I could. I mean, I won't be able to find it quickly enough. But um, so, so I texted Samin to tell her that Junie had died, and her response was something like, "Like death is weird." I think. Really. Um, <laughs> yeah, which seemed like a really Samin response. <laughs> it's true. I, mean, I feel like I should yeah. apologize, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was like. A, Okay. I think you told me that you weren't that upset about it or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. In right, my defense. Yeah. Maybe I said something weird about death. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Should we move on to the letter? Um, yes. Wait. So before we read the letter today, um, I think we should mention that sometimes we get um, letters that are fairly long. Um, and so we edit them to make them shorter. So we'll cut out a chunk here or there. Um and I realize that we've never mentioned that on the podcast, and maybe we should for transparency's sake. And that is actually the case here. We cut out a few sentences to make it shorter. Um, we've never, that I can recall, we've never edited in a letter to make it easier to answer. No. But now, is, that just popped into my head, like, maybe. <laughs> I feel like sometimes we read a letter and we get to the end and we're like, ah, oh, fuck, we didn't help at all, did we? Yeah. So maybe we should, like start making the problems easier to solve or something. I don't know. But we yeah. didn't do we that. We do that during one. our answers. We're like, I can't answer that question, but I can answer yeah, this other right. one. <laughs> well, I think this one is going to be tricky to answer, but let's see. Um, Dear Black Goat, when I entered graduate school, I absolutely loved my advisor. He would invite my lab mates and I out to beers after work, would constantly check on us and ask us about our work, and was super responsive to emails, phone calls, and text messages. Additionally, he would always come to work with a relatively cheerful demeanor. Unfortunately, in the past two years or so, my advisor has changed dramatically. He no longer has a cheerful attitude when he comes to work, and it's nearly impossible to get a hold of him. He's never in his office anymore. It takes him approximately two weeks to answer my email, any email I send him, if he ever does, and he will often hold onto papers that we are writing for one to two months without making any edits. I often feel like if anyone besides me, his graduate student, goes to him for help, Um, That takes precedence over anything I could ask. What makes it worse is that he is a compulsive micromanager who demands that we do exactly as he says and is completely unwilling to change his mind about how we frame and write manuscripts. My question is twofold. One, how do I go about furthering my career when I have an advisor who is either unwilling or unable to let me publish the research necessary to get me a job? And two, What do I tell prospective graduate students when they ask me about my experiences in his laboratory, especially during interview weekends, given that I would not recommend students working for him? Sincerely, tired, frustrated, and ready to graduate. Um, So the part of this letter that stood out the most to me was the second part of the twofold question, um, where the student asks what to tell prospective graduate students. Um, And my first reaction when reading this was that Um, If you don't like your experience in your lab, that it's really important to be honest during recruitment weekend um, with prospective graduate students because this is something that they're signing up for that could be, you know, five years of their life. Um, And I don't think you have any kind of responsibility to your advisor to um, portray the lab in any light other than what you think is um, accurate. Um, but I guess the problem with that approach is that um, your advisor could find out um, and that could have negative consequences. So, yeah, I mean, what what advice would you guys give? Uh, I guess, yeah, I worry a lot about retaliation. Like, I think the chances mm-hmm. that the advisor would find out that somebody said something negative might be pretty high. And there's also some legal issues if you say, like, very concrete things that might be false or debatable or whatever like I know there's some I can't remember what context but that's been raised before in some departments that I've been in I can't remember if it was in graduate school or what that like there's actually like yeah it's kind of like a job interview or something where if you tell a job candidate something negative about the environment the work environment or whatever like it better be true because it's a there's like it's a context where legal issues are relevant oh, that's um interesting. 
So there's some, I've, I think we just need to be careful I've, of it. I've heard that in relation to writing letters of recommendation. I've mm-hmm. not heard that in relation to describing yeah, I could be wrong. an advisor or a lab. I could be wrong. And I also think as long as you stick to like I statements, <laughs> like I mm-hmm. feel like blah, blah, right. blah, or, you know, I don't feel like he gets back to me in time or things like that. Um, I think you're probably fine. But yeah, I, I agree that like for the, I think prospective students should be told the truth the question is who's in the best position to tell them the truth and mm-hmm. is a current grad student in a secure enough position to do that mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think if it's I I think I I agree that the you know within the bounds of what won't you know put you at what you feel like is risk and it depends the nothing explicit makes it sound like there's any unusual risk of retaliation but I can understand why that might be a worry but I think to, I think being like don't feel bad about like setting boundaries for your own self but within whatever you, you feel comfortable I think being frank I, another way to handle it if if this in this case, the the way the person's describing it is that this was a change, and so this wouldn't necessarily apply in this case. But if this was like a, a habitually difficult advisor, um, that you could say, you could also tell them, look, I think you should really talk to so and so if so and so is someone who's already graduated from the lab and and who you feel like could be more frank than you could, like a former student or something. So that might be another way to do it. <clears throat> um, yeah, I you know the. To me, when I read this, what it what it, you know got me thinking about is just how, you know, the larger systemic issues of how we structure graduate training and and how tied in you are to one person, mm-hmm. oftentimes, mm-hmm. Um, because we have, in, you know, I think there are differences across different fields, um, but overall we have this kind of apprentice model where you train primarily or sometimes exclusively in one lab. And so there's one person that you're at the mercy of. Um, and, you know, graduate programs, some do better than others in sort of finding ways to mitigate the risks of that, um, like having advising committees in, that meet with the person instead of a single advisor. Something we started doing in my department that we borrowed from our biology department is now the primary advisor. So we have annual advising meetings with the committee, and um, part of that is the advisor's not in the room. Um, and, mm. you know, normally it's normally you just there's not any problems, any major problems. Normally it's just about like, let's talk about your relationship with your advisor and how to get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. But if someone's having difficulties, that's an opportunity to raise them. Although then the other members of the advising committee have to be people that, you know, the student would feel comfortable talking to, et cetera. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So so it, that's certainly not a perfect system. But we just kind of, you know, we've our our training is structured so much around one person, and I feel like we've we've been here before with other letters about like issues with advisors, where it's sort mm-hmm. of like your your choices are either suffer through it or switch advisors, mm-hmm. and there's there's not a, an awesome like middle ground. Although uh, between those, I think your point about. Um, I mean, restructuring graduate programs to have people work with multiple people. But, you know, if you're not able to restructure your graduate program um, to just try to do work with other people. So the first part of the question that asks, you know, what am I supposed to do in terms of my career in publishing and stuff like that? I mean, it depends on whether this person's advisor is willing to let them collaborate with others. But that would be one of the first things I would think to do would be to start projects with other faculty and with other students and yeah make it so that your research isn't completely contingent on um this one person's responses and if it's bad enough maybe transfer labs right yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and that yeah i mean if you can find so starting projects with other faculty sort of can be good also just like if if what you need is you know career advice or someone to read a manuscript or something finding someone who's willing to do that if if you can um and oftentimes that has the side effect or i shouldn't say oftentimes but it can have the side effect of 
then the other faculty become aware of what's going on, especially if it's not a program where they're advising meetings or where students naturally have close relationships with multiple faculty. Because a lot of times other faculty might not even know what's going on inside of a lab. And and so the other right. as other people find out, that can create potentially if they're willing to intervene can you know now they know and they can keep an eye out for signs or talk to the person or if it's bad enough intervene in a a more significant way i mean one thing kind Mm -hmm. of going back to on what i said earlier about the legal issues with like saying stuff that might be subjective or whatever is there's the opposite too which i don't understand why grad students don't take this more seriously which is if you're letting really well qualified people who probably have other offers and other options come to your program to work with someone who's known who has a pattern of not holding up their end of the job like being unprofessional as advisors we should be liable for that too so like right i've been in situations where i've been talking to other people's prospective students and thinking i really owe it to them ethically but also like legally like if they have multiple options and the option they're considering that i'm talking to them about is not a good one and there's like a really clear pattern of this person being a bad advisor like i think there's really strong ethical and and potentially legal um motivation to say something and but i think actually the other faculty if they do know about it have much more burden than the graduate students so i think it's absolutely Mm -hmm. fine and i would encourage graduate students to say something if they feel comfortable doing so but i think other faculty really ought to be thinking about what their responsibility is when they know this so I mean, I, w- I would also say, I mean, something we le- leapt over, and maybe because the letter made it sound like this wouldn't be an option, but I think a, often a really important step is to talk to the advisor themselves. And may- maybe in this specific case, it's past the point of no return. But, you know, graduate students absolutely should see their relationship with their advisor as a two-way street, mm-hmm. and they should be able to talk to their obviously like if there's fear of this person's just not reasonable or whatever then that's different but I I feel like oftentimes the the fears of retaliation fears of judgment fears of negative consequences are I see graduate students overplay those Mm -hmm. to the point where they're not willing to just like have a human conversation with someone and say look I I'm not getting out of our professional relationship what I need to be mm-hmm. getting out of it and so I feel like that that's something I can't say in this specific case without knowing more details whether that's appropriate but I, that's something I would tell everyone to consider and to talk to other people to get a reality check to find out like are your if you have fears about approaching this person are they valid or are you are you just sort of nervous about it mm-hmm. and then likewise for talking to your department chair or director of graduate studies or someone else in your program um, and telling them because, you know, what Samin's saying about like other faculty have a responsibility, that can only come into play if other people have information and not just vague reports like they have heard secondhand people in this person's lab are dissatisfied, but actual specific concrete information Mm because it's really hard to act on like oh, I heard a rumor some of this person's students are unhappy. And, you know, it's like a lot of graduate students mm-hmm. are unhappy and you hear something vague and mm-hmm. it's like, well, I don't know if this is like serious or not. So I, I, w- I would encourage this person to strongly consider approaching their advisor or approaching other people. And, and if they have any worries, to get a second opinion on that um, yeah. from someone that they trust. I think I'm mm-hmm. less optimistic than you that talking to the advisor will help, although I think you're right that it should be one of the options you consider. But I think I'm more optimistic that other faculty would actually care. And I think students might assume they wouldn't, but I think the odds that there are some faculty in the department who would care and would take it seriously yeah, are pretty high. right. And otherwise you can get into this sort of cycle where there's no mechanism for anybody ever hearing about someone being a bad advisor and for future students not knowing about it where it just like perpetuates this like bad advisor advisee relationship um yeah so i think like there the idea that you shouldn't tell other faculty members or you shouldn't go to the dgs or whatever um that's a problematic one because yeah i mean i think I think that many people would be um, very happy to help out in a situation like that and would want to know that information. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it can be tricky to figure out who. But Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think most graduate students have 
faculty that I don't know that they like think they could talk to about something important maybe that's yeah that would be nice I hope that's true but yeah I don't know I hope that's true yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Or yeah, you can write a letter to a podcast. Yeah, right. yeah, there you go. <laughs> cool. Well, I I hope we've helped somewhat uh, mm-hmm. for this person. Um, uh, yeah. Do you guys have any more to add, or should we? Are we? Have we gotten this one? I think so. I think we're good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, for your letter. Tired, frustrated, and ready, ready to graduate. And I I hope we've been helpful to you. Um, if you're listening, listeners, and you want to send us a letter for us to respond to in a future podcast, you can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. That's also just a way to reach us if you have comments, feedback, etc., um, even if it's not for reading on a podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we always appreciate hearing from people through, through email, through Twitter, through other means. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. You're sensing a theme here, probably. Mm-hmm. Our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, and you can find us on iTunes. So for our main topic today, we already previously recorded an interview with Fiona Fiddler. And it was a super interesting conversation. And uh, um, so we're going to go to that next. Um, So just to to give you a little bit of background, uh, Fiona Fiddler is an associate professor in the School of Biosciences and School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, or as I gather people say in Australia, Melbourne. Samin, you were just there. (laughs) Melbourne Uh, Uni. Melbourne Uni. I don't know how they say Uh, um, Melbourne. I can't do the accent. I wasn't there long enough. Yeah. Uh, Fiona received her PhD from the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. Um, She's written extensively about transparency and open science, and uh, in our interview, we talk with her specifically about research she did on the the recent history of psychology and a previous statistical reform movement, and we talk with her about how things today might be similar, what we can learn, as well as how they might be different. It's a super fun interview, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So up next, Fiona Fiddler. So Fiona, we're really happy to have you here with us. And I think the one of the reasons we're really excited to talk to you today is because you did research on a previous reform movement in psychology, the the movement or the attempt <laughs> attempted movement, I guess, to uh, reform null hypothesis significance testing. And you wrote your thesis about that. You interviewed a lot of people who I think, like when I read it, there were interviews and archival uh, material from like some big names that that I know and admire, people like Paul Meal or or Jacob Cohen. Um, can you tell us a little bit, maybe just like how what what was for people who haven't read it yet? Uh, what was your thesis about, and kind of how did you get into that topic? Um, so. Can I just say that my thesis is now like 13 years old. It's not like this is a new thing. Um, and it's been a bit confronting to read it again after all this time. So I was, I, I trained as a psychologist. That was my, my background in psychology. And I kind of stumbled across this problem of statistical power in the final year of my degree when I was doing a research project. And at that point, I just, I decided to leave psychology and move into philosophy, which did was a, a bit of a career disruption, but um, it was a better place to kind of look at this stuff from. So I, my thesis started out as, as examining um, a neglect of statistical power in psychology. And then, um, and then it kind of expanded from there as I realized that well, this wasn't just happening in psychology, it was also happening in medicine and also happening in ecology. And so it ended up being a, a kind of compar- a between disciplines comparison of how methodological change happens in different sciences. 
And were you specifically interested in change to like the statistical approach NHST and like moving, sure. moving away from yeah, that? that was, yeah, that was the focus was yeah. this kind of long quest to abandon p-values or somehow mitigate the use of or the over-reliance on p-values, which was a common theme across all of the disciplines. But everyone had been trying to do that for a very long time. And it sounded like maybe, at least at the time, the impression was that Mm -hmm. it had been more successful in medicine than in psychology. Yeah, I was was rereading that last night and thinking about the conversation we'd had today. And I think I, I feel like now looking back that I overstated how much progress had been made in medicine at the time it felt like a lot relative to what we'd seen in psychology but I would say now there's you know from there it didn't really go anywhere Mm -hmm. interesting now they're probably in the same place that we are still yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. And I, I have to say, I, I appreciate your comment about this being your dissertation. I can't, if somebody told me they wanted to interview me about my dissertation, I'd turn around and run the other way as fast as I could. Yeah. But I think one of, one of the, but that, that doesn't apply to yours. And I think the, the reason I feel that way, there's two reasons. One is that we're still on, on the actual specific issues that you talked about uh, um, in statistics we're still having the discussion. I think one of the themes in your in your thesis is how, you know, people were talking about this for decades and and you know, at the time you wrote it, there you know, it was kind of a snapshot at a time and it, it feels like in some ways we're still having these discussions. But then the the other way is that, you know, we're in the midst of a a sort of related but not exactly the mm-hmm. same kind of reform period now and and I think there's often stuff to, to learn from the past. So uh, so I do want to say your thesis holds up way better than I'm sure mine would. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, um, like what are what are some of the I mean, what are what are some of the things what are some of the parallels that you see from from what was happening then to what's sort of going on in, in the open science movement or whatever you want to call it? Well, uh, as you've just said, a lot of the discussions about um kind of misuse or overuse of null hypothesis testing, misunderstanding the purpose of null hypothesis testing, neglect of statistical power, um, all, all of those things seem to me at least exactly the same. Although the one thing that I suppose has changed quite substantially is the discussion around alternatives or um, so whether that's the, at the time that I was writing, the main alternative on the table was estimation. That's all. There were one or two Bayesian critics, um, or Bayesian critics of hypothesis testing, or just Bayesians writing about um, other things around. But it was, but it, there was not the scene, the Bayesian scene in psychology that there is now. That's changed a lot. Hmm. Yeah, I thought yeah, that was, was interesting to me. To oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I thought that was interesting, too, because you described this kind of passive resistance to changing null hypothesis significance testing. And um, I think that so, I, I mean, I don't have the knowledge to make a comparison between then and now in terms of the degree of this passive resistance. But I still think that I perceive some passive resistance to changing null hypothesis significance testing now. And it's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting contrast to some of the other reforms that are going on now that seem to um, seem to have taken off more. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure if that's a content difference or, you know, like an issue difference or if there are other di- things that account for that. I, th- I think I've, I think I've seen that too. Actually, I hadn't really thought of it this way before, but so with things like pre-registration, for example, you know, there's been quite a lot of uptake of pre-registration. I think it's been a very successful right. part of the reform. But um, mm-hmm. but obviously there are people who want to argue against it and they've been quite vocal. So it does feel like there's been a genuine debate about that. Um, mm-hmm. with, with null hypothesis testing, although sometimes, you know, at events like the APS conference, they have held formal debates there's never really been another side Mm -hmm. so there's sort of the critics and then there's people who say oh that's you know that's a little bit overstated but there's not there's not never really been any defenses 
Yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite lines in your thesis was a quote from Paul Neal where he was saying to some committee that was ignoring him, um, if what I had to say on this question is all baloney, it seems to me you might want to tell me what is the matter with it. So it sounded like it was hard to get even anyone to argue with them or like, mm. yeah. yeah. Which Didn't that I think statement some not get parts... a response also? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And sometimes I feel like I can resonate with that in the open science thing where like sometimes it feels like the conversation immediately switches from the substantive arguments for and against pre-registration or whatever into some other peripheral discussion of either tone or something else and it's hard to get people to stay on the topic of like no like let's really evaluate the arguments for and against um but i agree that i think with this reform movement there is actually more engagement more resist active resistance rather than just passive which is more Mm -hmm. satisfying right because then at least there's i think it's a definite sign of progress yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i you know you you had this. You you wrote about how like philosophers like Kuhn and Lakatos didn't anticipate the idea of passive resistance. They they kind of thought that uh, you know and it, I mean I that, yeah they thought that people would maybe you know that that the idea that people would admit that something was wrong but not change didn't doesn't fit into it right either they they resist admitting it like in Kuhn or they they admit it and then they do change. Um, and I think one of the things that that I was really struck by, you know, thinking, reading, um, reading your research and thinking about it is is the limits of what we th- tend to think we're about in academia, which is like scholarship and rational argumentation and mm-hmm. persuasion, right? Like people have been writing very analytically, like well crafted analyses of the problems with null hypothesis significance testing and nowadays with other kinds of things and you know it's like you can be right and nobody listens to you and do you want to like go to your grave your gravestone says here lies Sanjay he was right but nobody cared and that (laughs) sort of feels (laughs) you know like that's been a a, um, yeah that's been sort of a phenomenon um that persuasion and analysis, rational persuasion and analysis, doesn't seem to be enough. Yeah, completely. There's um, uh, as I was rereading <laughs> chapter four, um, I remembered an article that was written in the early '90s in a very sort of obscure Australian journal. Probably no one else <laughs> has ever read it, but it was an <laughs> argument about uh, that for an explanation for the persistence of null hypothesis testing that felt to me at the time quite different from others that were around, which mostly focused on fallacies. You know, people just keep doing um, this because they don't properly understand what a p-value means, and if they properly understood what it meant, then they would see how useless it was. So this other explanation by this guy called I.D. John, I don't even know his first name, he's just Mm -hmm. I.D., I could never get in touch with him, was that um, (laughs) statistics people don't change aren't changing because statistics are too are not meaningful in psychology anyway that statistics are only applied as rhetoric to improve um psychology's struggle for epistemic authority he called it so you have the statistics there in your article because that's what makes it look really scientific but it doesn't actually change anyone's beliefs or their conclusions um and so when, you know, critics write saying this is technically flawed. Like, well, it it's just window dressing anyway, yeah, so we yeah, don't care. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the issue of like what, how effective logical and empirical and so on arguments and evidence are is really fascinating. And I, I agree. I think that was something that seemed to be in common with both movements. It's really mm-hmm. not about just having the better arguments or the better evidence. There's a social component to it mm-hmm. and a political component to it. And actually one of the most infuriating things to me in the in chapter four were the juxtaposition of two different quotes by Pat Trout. Mm-hmm. So like in one place he was saying, you know, we organized these symposia, but we really wanted there to be both sides. And he said, you know, the irony was that we were sympathetic to the cause, but we did we resented the heavy handedness. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was great that he was so honest about that, you know, it wasn't about the arguments being wrong. It was just that the way they went about it was too heavy handed. But then later in the chapter, he's quoted as saying that when there's so much social inertia, arguments aren't going to carry the day. And I just wanted to pull my hair out because I was like, okay, well, if arguments aren't going to carry the day, then what choice do people have but to be heavy handed if if it's clear that they have the better yeah. arguments? And, yeah. um, but that's, so I, I mean, that resonated. 
that's I mean one of the interesting things so besides you know when they finally moved past just you know writing arguments in journals that you know and and you have these great quotes from and descriptions of like Cohen and Meal that like everybody cited my paper and you know Meal talks about I got a thousand requests for a preprint but nobody changed a damn thing or whatever (laughs) but so so when they finally moved beyond it and the, the story of how like the the APA task force got started with like a letter campaign was super interesting but like they so they finally okay they commissioned this blue ribbon panel blah 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 but even then, when they're they're trying something that's a little bit more political and institutional, it still sort of fizzled. It didn't it didn't really go anywhere. I it mean, didn't have what's, teeth. yeah, what's your what's your sense of it? Was it just the panel itself just didn't do what it should have done, or is it that sort of afterwards that it wasn't taken up? I think um, I think there's a few, probably three main things. So one is that. They deliberately excluded people from that panel who they knew were going to take very radical positions. Um, so they, the, um, Schmidt, for example, was never invited onto that panel, even though he was the instigator of that, that the letter was to him and that he put it to the APA to form it. Um, and Jack, Jack Hunter, his, co- his long-time co-author, I think was probably dead by that around the time that that panel started but there's no way like they wouldn't even let him into the debates in APS for example because of you know what kind of crazy thing he might do or say so there was deliberate exclusion of some people that they thought would be too radical even though they'd been instrumental in earlier stuff and another problem there was that the chair of that panel was not sympathetic so um, there were there were people really arguing for change on the panel. There were some really serious people on it, but the chair um, had a lot of power and and didn't sort of put forward those people's arguments as much as they could. We still don't know, for example, what happened to the letters that Paul Meal wrote to the chair of that committee. They were not in the archi- any of the archives, for example. And then I think the third thing was that they didn't spend any time together. So most of these people didn't know each other very well beforehand. The committee met exactly twice in um, conference rooms in airports, probably for about a total of six hours. So there was no, and I think this is generally one of the things that's really different about the reform this time is that there is a sense of community that people are connected mm-hmm. and coordinated in ways that they really weren't then. I was shocked that Cohen and Rosenthal had never even corresponded. Like, it's one thing to not meet, but they had never even contacted Yeah, I feel like that happened to me over and over again. When I went to interview people, I would they would ask me where I had just come from, and I would say, oh, I've been in New York talking to Pat Trout. I said, oh, what's it? I've, you know, yeah. None of them had ever met each yeah. other before. That's not entirely true, but many of them had never met, even though they had been... Doing writing exactly the same papers as each other for twenty years, or you know, both being editors of journals where they tried to institute reforms. Yes, yeah, really fragmented and piecemeal. I feel like that's changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it it points to the limitations of trying to do things through just only through our formal institutions, right? That you know, now we have social media mm-hmm. and email, even and other things. There's right much lower bars to communicating so that people don't mm-hmm. have to go through ins- not that they had to go through institutions then but it's it's much easier to go outside of them but there you know there from what you said about like how the committee was composed and and sort of selected who to listen to and who not you know there there's this there's this phenomenon i've seen little hints of with open science reforms where sometimes you know so at first like people just don't want to listen mm. to you at all if you're trying if you're trying to make like big changes in an institution or a community people don't want to listen to you at all and then once they can't not listen to you at all this thing that i've i've seen hints of and i think happens in other places as well which is like you try to do the weakest possible thing and declare victory on behalf of the reformers so you can move past it right so you you say yeah we've done this thing you guys won now now shut up and leave us alone we did the thing you asked for mm. it's like no 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 you didn't do the thing i asked for and, and <laughs> it it felt like that that was especially in in yeah meal's correspondence or his accounts of his correspondence that disappeared how um, he 
he was saying that that you know they they had this commission and it changed the style book it did all these things that superficially looked like there was action happening um but the the people that had the sort of the deepest investment in the the kind of best formed views were not happy about it but it was like no no we like the the style book says report and effect size and you know who cares? We're not going to look to see if anyone's actually doing that. It's in the you know the fourth edition now or whatever. I actually like. I think that the Wilkinson et al. paper, the nineteen ninety nine paper, which was the final report of that task force. I don't. I don't think that's a terrible paper. I mean, Meal accuses it of having no teeth, and and you know mm-hmm. he's he's right that it could have done a lot a lot more. But I, I think it's you know I think it's okay, um, and it's certainly a lot better than it could have been. So the lead author on that, Leyland Wilkinson, was not the chair of the committee. Leyland Wilkinson kind of stepped in at the last minute to save it, save the situation. Um, the report could have been a lot worse. That's interesting because that's consistent with something yeah. else I've noticed, which is like it seems like specific individuals being in a certain place at the right time mm-hmm. and having a certain personality seems mm. to really change the course of these movements. Yeah. It's quite shocking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was um, I was sort of struck as I was reading um, as I was reading your dissertation by the sort of this catch twenty two became sort of salient to me, which I think Samin has sort of alluded to um, previously, which is this idea that if you take the stance of saying that the status quo is extremely problematic, um, then you're at risk of alienating people by making people really defensive. Um, but if you take a milder position and say like, well, the status quo has like some small issues, um, then you risk allowing people to stay complacent. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that those, there's a way to marry those two things or is, is that always a trade-off that people have to yeah, decide? I, I mean, I, I, I don't really know. I don't pretend to have any answers to that, but um, it seems to me that having <laughs> having people say all those things like having some people say really extreme things and other people say well we could we could at least do this you know offer some uh-huh, incremental yeah. steps to that maybe the plural plurality of that is a good um is a good thing i don't know yeah we we had a talk yesterday uh glenn bigley spoke yesterday and he was saying that he doesn't call out he doesn't name the specific he uses examples but he doesn't name the papers of the mm-hmm. authors because that's not important and so on and i talked to him afterwards and i was like but I agree I do the same thing, but I'm really glad there are people who do, and I will defend their right to do it. And mm. he was like, yes, exactly. And so I thought it was funny that we each have our strategy, and we think it's the right strategy, but it only works because other people take a different strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, or if it works. I don't know if it works. <laughs> it's no, too I optimistic. See, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that you both had that um, same feeling. Uh, I can see that that can happen then at the expense of, you know, that will it would look incoherent or like the movement lacks cohesion or something to people who are outside it. I guess that's a, a trade off. Yeah. I'm curious what how you feel when you watch the current reform movement, what your reaction is given how much more knowledge you have about like we're kind of historically ignorant in this movement. We like pretend that there's been no past. And especially like, I'm curious when you hear people say, whoa, 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 let's not rush into anything. Yeah. Like given what you know about the history, I'm curious what you're thinking when yeah. watch yeah. all that unfold. Yeah, it's only been a hundred years. Yeah. Rush. <laughs> no, no, I mean, mostly, I, honestly, most of the time I just feel really excited. But like when I finished writing, when I finished my PhD in 2005, I just thought it was, to, you know, dead like this is this is not going anywhere nothing's going to happen in my lifetime and I started I went over to La Trobe and I started a postdoc with Jeff Cumming kind of looking at statistical cognition stuff did that for a year or so and then I went on maternity leave and I feel like I came back from maternity leave and the whole world had changed it was just so different I really never expected it would happen so I'm still I still mostly just feel really excited when I see people talking about it do you, Fiona, do you have any sense from, so one one of the things that I think has been characteristic, and again, this goes back to social media, is how much sort of connection and not just being connected, but in some cases, active participation from people who traditionally would have been low in the hierarchy or on the margins, right? So, so you see a lot of people in, you, 
you know, graduate students are very plugged in via social media. Um, you see a lot of people who are at primarily teaching institutions or, or not at the R1s, not the, the big famous names who are actively working on multi-site replication projects or writing papers or, or being involved in organizations like SIPs or Center for Open Science Ambassadors, all this stuff, right? So, so you see a lot of organization by people sort of low in hierarchy and on the margins. Um, so that opportunity for organization wasn't there in the 90s right. when the APA task force happened or in the 80s or 70s. But do you have any sense of, is there any like record or or was there any sense from the people you interviewed of whether there was like a, a sort of wellspring of support that just didn't have this, the chance to organize and mobilize? Or was it that like if you're a grad student or you're kind of on the periphery, you just weren't even hearing about these debates at the time? Yeah, I, the latter. I don't feel like there was any kind of underground thing. No, they're just you just wouldn't have even heard about it, I think, if you're a grad student yeah. or on the margins. Actually, while you were asking that, I was thinking about how different, if I was doing a project like this now, interviewing people who'd been, played a key role in the current reforms, just how different the demographic of that interview sample would be now to what it was then so I I think I did there were a few women that I interviewed for my PhD um, mostly it was men and there certainly wouldn't have been anyone under the age of 50 to mm. be generous yeah it's That's very very different now mm. yeah that mm. is really different yeah it was kind of like a I mean, why, aside from the obvious <laughs> reasons of, you know, uh, um, history of sexism and all that kind of stuff, but what, I mean, because that, that's even an unrepresentative sample, even of the era, right? If yeah. there were, you know, on, only a couple of women who were sort of, like, what what do you think explained that? Was it sort of a, a privilege to be able to pontificate about the state of affairs in the field? Was it having the stature to ruffle feathers that, that protected sort of older white men? Or like, what, what do you think was mm -hmm. making it, even for a time when the field as a whole was more homogenous, even at, uh, homogenous relative to that, to the field in general at the time? Like, what, what was it that selected these people? Yeah, I guess, I guess there was a bit of, you could only do this if you were established and tenured and, you know, already respected. Um, So when I started the interviews, I was actually looking for um, a, the common source. So what, what these people, how these people first discovered this problem? I thought I'm going to find the source of this. That there'll be one person or one great article that they all refer to. That was how they discovered this problem. But I didn't find anything like that. I really, I really don't know what selected them. But I certainly didn't. Um, you know, I don't think, oh, there might have been one or two exceptions, but in most places I never met people's graduate students. They didn't say, oh, I've got other, you know, I've got postdocs working on this, or there wasn't in any case sort of a, a research group or a younger kind of early career cohort that was following through on anything. I wonder if part of that is because it was so, so narrowly around the technical statistical yeah, things. Yeah. So you needed more training to even be able to understand yeah, yeah. the issues. Because now it's like you could be an undergrad and see that some of the claims being made in the literature seem hard to swallow and resonate with, you know, you might hear about the movement and as an undergrad, you might be like, yes, this is like something mm. that makes sense to me. Mm. But. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it, it makes me wonder because, you, you know, you said like there wasn't one source, right? There was, it wasn't like everybody was at a mm -hmm. meeting together or at the same talk or something. And so, it, you know, it, I mean, hearing that, it's really interesting because it makes me wonder like how many people this did occur to, but either they didn't feel like they had the standing to speak out about it because of career stage or gender or other things, or maybe they did, but nobody mm. listened to them or people, you know, um, it, it, you know, it took being a person who was very prestigious. I mean, it, it was interesting, like, in, you know, you talked about how Cohen was taken very seriously, both because, because of his work on regression, 
Um, but then also that he was mm. just a persuasive speaker. He was somebody that, uh, um, you mm. know, could sort of appeal to people. Right. Um, and and I wonder people who who wouldn't have been taken seriously in those times. Maybe maybe there were lots of women and lots of early career people who had the same doubts, but they didn't have an opportunity to yeah, speak out. Yeah, I mean that could that could well be the case. Most people I spoke to said. Um, that they hadn't been able to and these are you know the powerful people that they hadn't even been able to change what the person in the office next door to them was doing let alone have any broader impacts so, I highlighted that because I was like that's to me that's like the last place <laughs> right that's like the hardest bar to clear like I could change uh, people's minds on Twitter I could change people's minds at a conference I could change yeah, people's yeah. minds when I go visit another department but to change the mind of the person next door to me at my own institution yeah that's going to be the last frontier right. I think oh that's interesting which is interesting yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, but obviously, if you yeah. weren't, you know, that super famous famous person and editor of the main journal in your field, you you probably would have less of a chance, and maybe you'd give up quicker. Yeah. You mentioned I feel like that. Oh, Go um, You mentioned that the uh, the Cohen paper was one of the reasons that um, some people said that they got interested in the the NHST issue. Um, do you have uh, thoughts about? why people found that paper in particular so influential? Um, I mean, apart from the fact that he was already very famous and well-respected, it may have, maybe that it did for the first time provide some evidence that he had done that. I'm assuming you mean the power one, citing the power of clinical psychology. That right. it was probably the first thing that presented empirical evidence, you know, that was, that demonstrated a problem so to speak. The rest had been just kind of theoretical or stuff that could be read as just opinion pieces, but his had data. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've been dancing around like what's different this time, and the obvious mm-hmm. answer seems to be social media, but do you think it's more complicated than that, or do you think that's really the key? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think community more than social, I don't know, mm-hmm. I guess it's the same thing, isn't it? But yeah, community, however you characterize that. And, um, and, but yeah, I do think there's a difference in the type of evidence that we see now that it isn't just, um, you know, sound philosophical argument or technical statistical arguments that people are, um, demo- you know, the reproducibility projects are probably the, the most well known case where people have actually collected evidence of a problem, <laughs> empirical evidence of a problem, and it's been demo. The level of demonstrability of the problem and consequences feels higher to me this time. So Surveys if, of QRPs. If you, uh, if you, if if you were pulled aside right now by someone, let's say a, a grad student in history and philosophy of science, who said they wanna they want to do their thesis on now the way you did your thesis or maybe in five years or 10 years from now that that situation um what what would you tell them like what what would you tell them how would how would you suggest framing it or or what would you who would you tell them to talk to or what where would you tell them to focus their attention that would be the best day of my life if someone came and said that to me <laughs> someone's going to right i mean i don't know it seems like yeah, yeah. so i I reckon it would be much. My impression is that it would be much harder to do now to do it now. That there's so much more to mm-hmm. to come. You couldn't up. read all the correspondence. For no, example, you, no, you, know. you couldn't. Yeah, um, but it would be fascinating. So like, the the great um, the great secret shame about my thesis is that I was supposed to <laughs> the, the week before I went on that maternity leave over which the world changed. I signed a book contract to turn my thesis into a book and. Um, I'm sure other people can write books on maternity leave, but it turns <laughs> out I couldn't, and so I never did. And then I came back, however, many years later, and I thought, well, I should, I should really do that. I'll just update it. I'll just <laughs> update the story. <laughs> and, it, and it was completely beyond my capacity to be able to do that. There's so much bigger. There's so many more parts. Um, you, you know, the whole basic the the um, rise of a Bayesian movement in psychology alone feels like it should be a story of its own. I had another uh, 
thought I was really curious to pick your brain about. This is from chapter seven, where you compare the reform movements in medicine to psychology. And I don't know if you endorsed this difference or you just listed it as a possible explanation, but you said that in medicine, the issue was framed more as an ethical issue, whereas in psychology, Mm -hmm. it was framed more narrowly as a statistical Mm -hmm. technical issue. And it reminded me that at the beginning, like when I started getting involved in this, we, we had a reading group and we called it like scientific integrity. And then like, people started saying that sounded self-righteous. So then we're like, best practices. And they're like, no, that sounds self-righteous. So now we're just like, we talk about it in the most unmoralistic terms possible. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I do think, well, first, I think there is a moral angle to it. And second, I think it might strategically also be a bit, pretty big sacrifice to to kind of disinfect it and make it super technical. Mm. I mean, I, I do... I do kind of endorse that. I don't necessarily endorse everything that happened in medicine, but I do endorse the idea of, I mean, it's part of, for me, it's part of a broader philosophical position, I suppose, where I think that, you know, in science, we've accepted that there are non-epistemic values in science, but we still try and fight against the idea um, that there might be other (laughs) values, which feels a little bit... um, Sorry, we've accepted the idea that there are values associated with the episode, but not the idea that there are non-epistemic values. And I think it's, you know, it's a bit ridiculous, and that we should, that they should, that scientists should have values, and they should be explicit about those, and that it's fine for that to be part of this reform, and it might, in fact, be the best way to do it. Yeah, I think it's also important if that's really the level of disagreement that we have, that we can't even agree that, for example, openness and transparency are fundamental to science. We need to know that. Like, I think mm. to me, like sometimes when I have debates with people, I'm like, wait, let's back way up. Like, do you agree with like some of the maternian norms? Like, because if we don't even, then we have a bigger conversation we need to have if we don't have these shared fundamental values. And I think that's what some of this debate comes down to. Yes, it is. Yeah, it has yeah, to. I agree. I'm also curious about that you had a a lot in chapter four on the role of editors and I mean I I kept reading like at this journal this editor did this and this and then they all ended with like and then it didn't work or it worked (laughs) for a few years and then a new editor came in and as an editor first of all that sounds exactly right like I think that you know the best you can hope for is that you make some incremental change that's much less than what you would do if you had full power which is good that editors don't have full power but Mm -hmm. so you're limited by you know you have other you're accountable to other people and other policies and so on you're limited by time you only have a short stint as editor it's hard to enforce even the things that you want that you get through as policy and so on like you have to it would take so much time to enforce it for every single paper but i also often when i give talks say that i think that's really where we can make if we could change journals and editors that would ripple it out into all the other incentives but your your thesis presents a pretty pessimistic view of how easy that would Uh, be to do no yeah i I can understand how yes (laughs) i guess the historical description is um is a bit depressing but i but i do agree that 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 it is a very powerful way to affect change and um and i think you know when i went to i went to a meeting of um, ecology and evolutionary journal editors there were 30 editors in a room all going through the top guidelines one one by one deciding what approach they would take to it and I thought that was the most exciting thing that I had ever seen and that it seems to me that honestly if, if those people follow through with policies related to those things that that can't fail that if journals do this in a coordinated way that it can't right but the fail. coordination show like Tony Greenwald tried to do some things at JPSB in the late 70s and like his term was ended early mm. so i think mm. it, it can fail if it's as if it's isolated individuals trying to yeah, change things that's up, right you know during but if there's time. yes but if there's a if there's no room if all of the editors make changes at the same time right. then there's nowhere for authors to go they can't just but then that's heavy-handed yes i mean i think an, another what feels like maybe another difference and I'm, I'm curious you know what your sense from the previous iterations was that now there's uh, um, there's a constituency. So if you're an editor, and let's say you want to institute an open data policy, or or you want to do registered reports, there are, there's like a constituency out there that's lobbying to you to do that. That will be reviewers for it that you can choose. You know what I mean? Like um, 
you know, you can go to the pro initiative if you're an editor and, and, and if you're not doing it, there's a constituency that's going to try to make you do it anyway. And I wonder like, you know, for, I mean, you, you mentioned that like, um, uh, uh, you know, some of the editors did have associate editors at least who were on board with what they were doing. But I wonder if sort of having that larger community is something that's helpful and maybe another difference from, from before. Surely. Yeah. 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 I think it, there is a lot more. Um, well, yeah, there's a, a, you can appeal to the fact that there is this big movement out there so that you don't feel like you're a rogue. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was thinking about you know that a couple of comments from the editors about their associate editors being on board, and it didn't occur to me at the time, but I, I read that again now and wonder exactly what they meant by that. And uh, I didn't think to ask them. You know, so there were some associate editors who didn't complain, or were mm-hmm. they actively supporting? I don't I don't really know how yeah. strong that. It comes back to the like having the right person in the right place at the right time because each individual editor and associate editor can have mm. you know they touch so many papers that even if the policy is a certain way if the people who are tasked with carrying it out don't carry it out that that makes a huge mm. difference mm. it's crazy how much hinges on these really kind of coincidental or random mm. things yeah cool well, we're, I think we're kind of running out of time. Alexa, unfortunately, had to ghost us. She had a, an appointment, so she left a little early. If people listening are wondering why Alexa has, has gotten And it's silent. my fault because I calculated the time differences wrong across the various time zones that we're all in. <laughs> but I'm glad we got some yeah. time with you, Fiona. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Thanks. thank you so much, Fiona. This oh. has been super interesting, and we will we'll definitely post a link to your thesis um, in the... Uh, in the the show notes so that people can go read it. Um, We were mostly talking about chapters four and a little bit of seven, but I think some people are going to be interested to read the whole thing, I'm sure. Yeah, and read um, it it remembering that it's old and don't endorse everything I said. (laughs) Read it imagining how people would (laughs) feel if they were reading your thesis. (laughs) I I found it to be an extremely interesting read. Yeah, it was great. So I, I understand the... I totally get the like. It's hard to look at your own stuff in hindsight, but uh, I um, I will recommend it to people without. And I'm not just saying that because <laughs> no, I agree. I just meant like I was shocked. Like yeah, because if I compared to how my thesis would yeah. stand up, it's, thank it's you way for better. being so nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Fiona, thanks. and thanks everybody for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.